Our scripture reading today is from 2 Kings chapter 4. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you to. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed, to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Amen. Amen. Great to see you all today. If you're new here, my name is Morgan. I'm the lead pastor. Of course, welcome once more. And before we get going, let me just give you a little sneak peek about where we're going next week. Next week, we'll be beginning a new series that'll take us to Easter called The Story of the Bible. Yeah, you're like, that's kind of sparkly. It's kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, You may know some Bible stories, but you may not know the story of the Bible. And so for the next 10 weeks, taking us to Easter, we'll be looking at both how the Bible came to be and what the big picture really means, what it's all about. Why are we here? What's gone wrong with the world? And how does God plan to put it right? So I'm really excited about this. The big picture story, never done anything like this before. And we'll begin that next week. Hope to have you back. 
But today we're finishing this short series for the month of January called Great Faith. And not only have we been doing this uh, along with hundreds of other churches in our global, every nation, spiritual family, but we've also been doing this to sort of recapture, uh, regain some ground in, in your life, in your heart, and maybe in the, even in the church of Jesus in general. Because this whole idea of great faith, uh, uh, of the topic of faith, the doctrine of faith, uh, sometimes, many times, uh, many times what we've heard of about great faith, maybe for you it seemed like it's had more to do with getting stuff than getting Jesus. Maybe that's your background with this whole, this whole thought, this whole idea. And so if you've ever wondered, well, what does all this faith stuff have to do with Jesus? Well, the answer is everything. It has everything to do with Jesus because as we've seen and as we've said, the only times that the New Testament writers, those who either knew Jesus personally or who interviewed the eyewitnesses of those who knew him personally, the only times they ever record that he was ever amazed at a human being, the only times he was ever stunned by or marveled at a human being was always in direct connection with their great faith or lack of it. In other words, we see Jesus' desires for us to live lives of great faith. But today I want to talk to you about what great faith has to do with perhaps the most difficult thing of all to have great faith for. I want to talk to you about what to do, how we handle, how we face, how we look at life when we feel like a dream has died. When a dream has died, and I don't know about you, but for me, 2018 was a really challenging year. I'm saying this with a smile on my face, even as there's still maybe some lingering pain in my heart, just keeping it real, as they say. All right, but some of you, I know this was true for you. Some of you, this last year, you experienced a really challenging year. Maybe even you faced and experienced the death of a dream, maybe the very real death of a loved one, of a child, of a parent, uh, of a friend, or something happened to you through which you experienced the death of hope or through an unexpected moment or a crisis or something in the world, that's happened. And because of that, now you're facing either an uncertain future or the death of a dream somehow. And when I talk about this, when I'm talking today about facing the death of a dream, I'm not talking about something that you just kind of liked to do. But now you can't do it anymore. Maybe something you had, you know, fun doing, but you can't do anymore. Like when I had three kids in two years and, you know, you got to quit playing golf every week or every month or maybe even at all anymore. All right. That's not the death of a dream. That's called parenting, right? No, I'm talking about what, what we do, how we handle, how we face a situation where we feel like there's something that, that uh, deep inside of us, we feel like God has really promised to us, that he's committed to us. Now it seems dead to us. I'm talking about what we do when there was something that we really believed. For those of us who, who are Jesus followers, uh, uh, there's something we really were trusting him for. We feel like he's told us to do, and then that thing just vanished. It was stolen it crashed and burned or maybe never even came to be at all. Now, this story may seem familiar to a number of you, but if it's, if it's new today, this story that we heard, read, a part of anyway, it takes place in about the 8th century B.C., 8th century B.C., during a time when the kings of Israel were failing and falling. The, the, the crown was becoming corrupted, but we see there were still faithful followers of God in the land. And two of these faithful followers we meet in the story are simply known as the Shunammite woman and her husband. 
husband. And not only did we see that they loved God, they also loved uh, someone and befriended someone named Elisha, the prophet of God, the one who spoke for God in Israel in this time. And they loved Elisha so much that if you, you know the story, they actually had built a little room for him to come in and stay with them when he traveled through their land. And they, the point is that they, they had built a place for the presence of God to abide in their lives. They were, they were remarkable people. They, they built a place for the presence of God to come in and fill their home and touch their hearts and, and fill their lives. They were so remarkable because unlike many people, they didn't say, God, if you really loved me, you would do something for me. They said, God, because we love you, we just want to do something for you. Do you see the difference? They weren't saying, God, if you loved me, you would give me what I want. But they were saying, because we love you, we want to give something to you. We want to create space for more of you in our lives. And so out of their worship, out of their faithfulness, though, something happened in the prophet Elisha's heart. He, he wanted to do something in return for them, in return for all the hospitality and love that they had extended to him. And so he, we read, perceiving their deepest dream. Sensing their greatest desire, he spoke something to them and promised them now the one thing that they did not have, which was their own child. Just in verse 16, right before our reading picked up, this is what he said to them. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. But as we heard earlier, and this is the part of the story we come into, the story takes a, a tragic turn. Uh, one day as the boy is out in the field, something happens to him. It could have been a, a heat stroke. It could have been an aneurysm. We don't know. All we know is that the boy died in his mother's lap. And what's worse, now the dream of this family, the dream of this mother had died because, because with the death of the son, not only was love being lost, but a future was fading because sons in that day were everything. Sons were the family's social security. They were the family's financial safety net. They were to grow up to be the caregivers one day for the parents, the protectors of the parents. And one day they would run the family when the family's power Pass to them. See, in this moment, the point is not only in this mother's lap as her child dies, not only is the promise of God passing, but her future is fading. See, her dream has died. And now, in one of the most plaintive, I think heartbreaking scenes in all the Bible, this woman, this Shunammite woman, saddles her donkey and she rides to find the prophet. And so she saddles her donkey, she rides, she falls at his feet, and this is what she says. Because then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Whew. Friends, isn't this what we ask of God? Don't we ask, don't we say the same thing? Come on, when a dream has died, we say to God, 
Did I ask for all this, huh? God, did I ask for this? No. As a matter of fact, since we're asking the question, I didn't ask for this. God, you asked me for this. You asked me to, like, believe you for this. You promised this to me. You asked me to love someone like this. I didn't ask for this situation. And we feel like this in a number of ways. Maybe in your job today, you're feeling this. You're thinking, I didn't ask for that new boss. <laughs> I didn't ask for that new coworker. You know, I didn't ask for this merger or whatever. We say, God, I didn't ask you for this. You're just the one who asked me to, to move here, take that job, file that application or whatever. We feel this way uh, across all of our lives if you're here. And you're single and you've wanted to get married. Now, again, not all singles want to get married. Matter of fact, the Bible actually endorses that. First Corinthians 7, it says, hey, you're single, you want to get married? Great. Single, don't want to get married? Great. Thousands of years of ancient culture, toppled by Paul. Anyway, that's another sermon. <laughs> but at some point, if you're single, if you're wanting, desiring to get married, you'll look up and say, God, I didn't even ask you to be born. You know, I didn't ask for my life, yet here I am. I've got this dream, this righteous desire to have a family, to, have, uh, uh, to be married. It seems to be dying. Why did you deceive me? Some of you may feel this way in your marriage. You, you look over at your spouse and you ask, did I ask for this? And the answer is, well, sort of, kind of. Yeah, you, when, when, you, when you got married, when you asked for that, you, you asked to bring, yes, into your life a degree of difficulty and challenge. But no, of course, certainly you did not ask or desire that depth of, of pain or that affair, perhaps, or for the dead end to hit you. We say, did I ask for this? But you'll notice what Elisha does here and what he doesn't do here. Elisha, first of all, he doesn't even speak. He doesn't reply to her. Now, now, in Hebrew narrative, this is meaningful. It's supposed to heighten the tension in the story. The woman's begging him at his feet, crying out to him, but he's not even speaking to her. So what will the man of God do? What will the woman of God do when faced with an impossible circumstance, with the death of a dream in their life? Well, in this case, we're supposed to see what he actually does do here. The choice that you or I, the man, woman of God, is supposed to make when we're faced with this death of a dream. See, in this circumstance, this impossible circumstance, here is what Elisha does. Verse 32. It says, when he came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Now here's what he did. Let me encourage you, encourage me to do this first, the same thing first. Whenever we are facing the death of a dream, here's what we do first. Here it is. We shut ourselves in with it and with God. We shut ourselves in with it and with God. There's a shutting in, a kind of a shutting in God calls us to. See, Elisha shuts himself in with God. He, he closes the door on the outside and he brings all the deadness, all the sadness into the room with him in that moment. See, I think there's a, there's a kind of shutting in God calls us to, that he asks us to come and do in the middle of our pain. He asks us to come in to see him. He asks us to come before him and to bring that dead, lifeless thing before him. 
And let me tell you, here's the reason why. It's because when there's been the death of a dream, of a relationship, so many times, don't we? We just want to bury it. Man, we want to dig six feet of earth and put a tombstone on it, don't we? Have a funeral, man, call it a day, eat our fried chicken, and move on with life, right? No, but Elisha doesn't do that. He doesn't bury the situation. He doesn't bury his feelings. And while it's true, yes, we should let go of fundamentally abusive people and situations, this is not that. This is a moment in time where Elisha does what we should all do. He doesn't just bury the past. Instead, he brings all the deadness of the situation into a room with him, and he shuts himself in with it and God. Let me tell you, sometimes no one else can do this with you, and certainly no one else can do this for you. Years ago, when it seemed like, uh, in a way, my marriage was at a dead end, Carrie's and my marriage was at a dead end, she had to do this for us and for me. Now, I, you know, I should have been doing this, but I, I wasn't. I should have been, but I wasn't in a place to. I, I had been in my life, I'd been doing too much, carrying too much for too long, and unfortunately and wrongly, what I was carrying did not include her. Maybe you're in the same place today. So she began to shut herself in with God, shut herself in with our marriage, and she began to pray, and she began to pray for us, for our, for our marriage, just for something. And you know, I think it's instructive here that it doesn't say what exactly Elisha prayed. It doesn't say what he said. We assume he's praying for the child to come back to life. But unlike other prayers of his, we don't get his words here. And I think that maybe it's because it's showing us that at some point, even the very best one of us is at our wit's end. We don't have something eloquent to bring to God. We don't have some fancy words. We don't have some inspiring prayer. We don't even have, you know, a flicker of life. And I think Elisha here, I think he felt as broken for this family as they were feeling broken. Because we don't get his words it just says he prayed. It doesn't say how long he prayed. It just says he prayed. And this, thank you, Jesus, is what my wife did for me and for us. And out of that, God did a miracle. And here is the miracle. God came to me in a dream. Oh, through a supernatural dream, yeah, where God actually <clears throat> threatened me. And there was a breakthrough. Now, that may sound harsh to you. Let me tell you, she was glad for it. Felt like love to her. And it was loving for me in the end. Of course, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it produces what? Harvest, righteousness, peace, right? It's always redemptive. First, there's a shutting in God calls us to. No one else can do this for you. But, 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 look at what else Elisha, the prophet, the man of God does here. He doesn't just shut himself in. Now he stretches himself out. Verse 34. Then he went up and he lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. Then he got up again, walked once back and forth in the house, and he went up and stretched himself upon him. It is not just a shutting in God calls us to, but a stretching out God calls us to as well. See, can you see what's happening here? That, that Elisha, Elisha, he isn't just praying. Elisha is priesting. He's priesting like a kind of a priest. He's interceding for the child. He covers the dead boy's body 
with his own living life. He comes literally face to face with deadness, eyeball to eyeball with death, with that dead thing in the room, and then he stretches himself out over it to cover it. And friend, this is what it looks like in your life when God calls you, when you need to come to terms with any dead thing. It means you take a risk. It means you begin to stretch yourself out over that deadness. And that's what the people of God What we are called to do as a church, as a means of being repairers of the breach, covering over brokenness in our world. Many years ago when I started doing campus ministry at the the University of Texas, uh, when I moved to Austin, I was was a, a minister who inherited this group of college students. And for a lot of reasons, that group was really, really broken was so much brokenness. The group could barely function, sure couldn't share good, the good news of Jesus. And I moved, when I came here, into this apartment full of these uh, male students. They were leaders in the group. But I didn't know what I was getting myself into. My roommate, I discovered soon, was soliciting prostitutes in the middle of the night. We'd fall asleep at the same time. He'd go out and come back before I ever woke up. Two other men would get up in the middle of the night to watch television because... The X-rated content was bleeding through the cable subscription. They actually discovered each other doing the same thing one night. Another man was suicidal. Another young man disliked me so much. Can you believe it? You know, uh, He admitted later he tried to sabotage the whole group by getting me in trouble with the university. But the worst part came when one of the young men in the group went back to his old life of partying, of using women. And we met with him and pleaded with him to stop it, but it was no use. And I remember going up to him in his room in Dobie Tower, that big blue thing on campus, on a Thursday, and begged him to come out of that and to serve, to serve Jesus. But he blew me off. The next night, he went to yet another party where he got drunk, got in a fight. He went back to his car found and picked up one of those old steering wheel clubs and killed another student with it. He went to jail and I never saw him again. Our group was a disaster. And like this woman, I remember thinking, I didn't ask for this. God, you called me here. I just inherited all these people. You called me here, Lord. And every day I began, I remember to go into my closet, into my apartment, and I made a list of all the students in our group. I remember literally laying down on the floor, stretching out my hands and arms over that with a list in front of me, and I began to pray for them for hours. And one by one, they either repented, they graduated, moved on, or they left the group. And then something wonderful happened. About a year later, God sent this revival into our group that lasted for several years. Over the next few years, hundreds of college students came to faith in Jesus from all kinds of ethnic backgrounds, faith backgrounds. Uh, We had campus drug dealers getting right with God, strippers getting right with God, people of broken sexual lifestyles getting right with God, and many of them are in this church still today, and many others are scattered around the world doing great things, leading businesses, practicing medicine, men raising families, getting 14 degrees or whatever they're getting to change the worlds of education and politics. See, this is what we do. We stretch ourselves out 
over the deadness in front of us. And this is what we do, friends, as a church when we go out into the streets through our Kai Street ministry here and we minister to the homelessness that we see the brokenness on the streets. This is what we do when we mentor at local schools. Hope you'll consider going to the training here during the third service. We stretch ourselves out over at-risk children who have no voice, no one to cry for them, no one to advocate for them in their neighborhood or in their home. This is what we do with Celebrate Recovery here. We, we stretch ourselves out over folks with addictions or hurts or patterns they struggle with. This is what we do, we have done, we will do with the children of Casavallado who have no parents. And for those of you who are foster parents, those of you who have, are adoptive parents or some mix of that, this is what you have done, what you continue to do on behalf of broken families. And this is what we do with TGA, the gospel, and our ministry that seeks to be a repairer of the breach where our culture and our nation's history and the sin nature of humanity conspire together to pull us apart over race and politics. We say no to the deadness and we stretch ourselves out to cover it. See, there's a corporate The point is, there's a public, yes, stretching out on behalf of the weak and the widow and the orphan for the sake of justice that the people of God, like Elisha, are called to do. And this is what he's doing here. Because who is he extending himself on behalf of? Come on. It's this woman who, for all practical purposes, she's a widow, a Shunammite, a racial outsider. Her husband is so weak and frail, he can't even ride to save her. She's the one who's got to ride. He can't pick the boy up. He's got to order a servant. She can't even tell the news of the death of their child for the fear of his heart giving out. See, Elisha is extending himself on behalf of someone who can't do for herself. But there's also, also the kind of thing, the thing inside each one of us that God calls us to stretch ourselves out over. That deadness from the past, the deadness of heart, the deadness of emotion God calls us to. And friend, I just want to appeal to you today in light of that thought. Let me tell you, don't build your life on a wound. Don't do it Don't build your life on a wound. Don't build your identity on what people didn't do for you or what you should have had or what you should have gotten but didn't or the person who hurt you and left you in the place where you are today. Don't build your life on that. Build it not on a wound, oh, but on a word from God. Build it on the word that says he will never leave you or ever forsake you and that you are his beloved child. Build it on the word that says he is for you and have the courage once more to stretch yourself out over the past. You say, are you telling me to get over it? No. But I am calling you to deal with it. I'm not telling you to get over it, but to deal with it for the sake of your own health, your own health, and the health of the people around you. That may look like getting professional counseling, or therapy, or a community group leader, or a pastor involved, but most of all, it just looks like believing the Word of God. Don't build it on a wound, but on a word. And if we'll do this, if we will shut ourselves in, <clears throat> and we will stretch ourselves out, look at what God might do. Verse 35. <clears throat> the child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And so he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. See, in the end, there's a standing up that God brings us to, uh, that brings into the lives of those who have just enough faith to call on him, just enough faith to reach out to him and call on him, because isn't he the God who brings the dead things back to life? He is. And how, then, can you know that? It's because 
this whole story, the whole passage here, is really just a picture of the gospel of Jesus. You say, what do you mean? Oh, I mean two things. I mean the standing up right here both shows us something and points us to something. It shows us our heart and it points us ahead. First, it shows us our own hearts. And here's what I mean. You see, it's, it's so tempting. Oh, it's so tempting that when you, when you read the Bible, maybe this is you today, uh, that you think it's just like exploding with resurrection stories. Like resurrection here, resurrection there. But there's only seven the whole Bible, 66 books, and only two of those are in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. This is one of them. And six of those seven, the book of Hebrews says, are all about women who received back their dead. Why women, not men? Ooh, because in that day, women were at the bottom, poor, no rights at all. But this whole story, all of them are trying to show us something, if we'll see it. They're trying to show us the kind of of person that God saves. Because in general that you are, the better off you are, wealthier that you are, the more educated that you are, the more attractive like all of you are. The more talented you are, the more moral maybe you've been raised to be by good and well-meaning parents, the more likely you are to look at those things and see yourself as a person who's doing all right, doing okay. Those things give your life the meaning, the purpose, the salvation that you want. The less likely you ever are to encounter God. You say, why is that? Here it is. It's because of your spiritual anatomy. Your spiritual anatomy, the Bible's message front to back, is that we were all born with a fire in our heart that burns for self. And if you don't believe that, come on, just read the news. It burns for self. And the more power we pour in that fire, the more morality we even pour into it, the more money, the more even education we pour into that flame, the higher and hotter it burns and energizes us over and over to live apart from God. But throughout the Bible, who's the kind of person God's always coming to? Who's the one he's always speaking to? Not the one with something, but it's always the one with nothing. See, it's the outcast, powerless, the widow. Look, all around the world today, it's always the poor who embrace the gospel first. It's not the educated elite, not the cultural elite, not the ethnic group that's on the top that's, uh, that's uh, endorsing God. No, they're the ones who frequently turn away from God, become skeptics. Why? Because by comparison, they already feel saved, right? They have power, education, money by comparison. But today, if you will position your heart like you see in this woman's life, like the very ones Jesus goes to time and time again, like a person who's got nothing, no moral record, no ability to save themselves, but like you see yourself like a powerless outcast, what will he do? You see it right here. He'll rush in, not with judgment, but with tender mercy, loving grace, because, because after all, isn't there someone who's already come and done all this for us? Isn't there someone who's already come in and shut himself in for us? Come on, there is. Jesus Christ came and he shut himself in, in the tomb with our deadness, with our lostness, with our separation from God, with the devil, with all the spiritual forces of hell. He shut himself in with all of that. And didn't he stretch himself out on the cross for us, over us, over our lives? And hasn't he come face to face with the pain of humanity? And hasn't he given his last dying breath? breath for us so that we could live. He has 
Oh, but he's done even more. Because he wasn't just shut up in a tomb for us. He didn't just stretch himself out on a cross for us. He stood up for us. He came back to life as the ultimate firstborn son. With this boy is just a type of here. Jesus is the ultimate child of promise, prophecy, the son about whom all the prophecies were all ever about. He was stretched out that we could live, but he stood up that we could walk in newness of life whole new kind of way. You may say, Morgan, okay, great. You know, these stories, they're nice. Nice story. But my daughter died, right? My marriage died. Family died. Parent died. My friend died. Where was God? Some of you are saying, shoot, I would settle for an Elisha. Where was Elisha? Listen, you have to see this. And this is what the whole story within the larger story of the gospel of Jesus points us to. And finally, it points us ahead. It points us ahead. Dr. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, all the other resurrection stories in the Bible, including this one, they're all resurrections backward. The people who died were resurrected backward into this life, in this world. They're all wonderful, aren't they? Yeah. They're all meaningful. Yeah. But they, all these people, they died again. This boy, come on, he died again. Lazarus died again. Dorcas in the New Testament, she died again. All the ones who were resurrected died again. Someone lost them again. And even if, even if your child or a parent or a friend, my friend who have died, even if they had been raised from the dead, they'd still die again. You'd still lose them again or they would lose you. And I know it seems, oh, I know it seems like it would have been better if they'd have lived and not died. And I believe it would have been better if they'd have lived. Your life would have been better. The world would have been better. It would have been better because death is not God's best and ultimate plan for the world. But Keller points out that Jesus' resurrection is different because it isn't a resurrection backward. Jesus' resurrection, the standing up in the tomb, is a kind of resurrection forward, the kind of resurrection that we really all need, and is therefore the ultimate sign of what God can bring. Because what Jesus has done on the cross in his resurrection speaks of something greater. The Bible calls Jesus, here it is, the first fruits of the new heavens and the new earth. First fruits. What does first fruits mean? Oh, first fruits means that when you look at a a vine that's gone dead, when you look at a plant or an orchard or a tree that's gone dormant, when it's dead, but when you see that first grape, when you see that first piece of fruit, when you see that first bud, what does it mean? Oh, it means that more is on the way. More is on the way. And it means the first fruits means that Jesus, because he was raised again, it means one day the universe won't go out with a whimper of fading away into history. It means that Jesus one day will come and resurrect the whole thing, the universe, make it new, put an end to sin, put an end to injustice, put an end to the sickness and death that ravages our life and families and bodies and communities. It means that those who have died trusting him to save them will one day be saved even from death itself. It means that the picture you see right here of a mother receiving back her son, of the joy she feels with a son on her lap, coming back to life, standing back up, what she gets, what she feels right here. Jesus' resurrection means that's what eternity will be like for forever. The dead receiving back their life once more. Families reunited again forever in relationship. Charles Wesley, the great... Methodist hymn writer, he puts it like this. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, 
the grave, the skies. Made like him, like him we rise. Ours, the cross, the grave, the skies. It means all those things that could have harmed us before. They're now ours in Jesus. What do we do with the death of a dream? We shut ourselves in with it. Stretch ourselves out over it. And trust God for a standing up in the middle of it all.